Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Alex Pate and Tish Jones at Ramsey County's Roseville Library. Authors Alex Pate and Tish Jones come together for an evening of conversation about their writing and the African-American experience in Minnesota. Pate is a professor of writing, playwright, and award-winning novelist. His notable works include his debut, Losing Absalom, which won a Minnesota Book Award in 1994, and Amistad, a novelization of the screenplay for the 1997 Steven Spielberg historical drama of the same name. Tish Jones is a poet, activist, and the executive director of True Art Speaks, a Twin Cities nonprofit dedicated to arts education through the hip hop and spoken word culture. Pate is a senior editor of, and Jones, one of the 43 contributors to, Blues Vision, a landmark anthology showcasing the unique vision and reality of Minnesota's diverse African-American community. Pleasure to be here with you this evening. Um, yes, hello. Good to see you all. Glad you came out on a Monday night. That's amazing. Um, so I guess we're just going to dive into this thing. Um, so I have been trying to figure out a way to fold a couple questions into one. So I'm going to start. I'm just going to go for it. Go. Go on. <laughs> all right. Um, who do you write for? And why is that particular audience significant? I knew you were going to ask this question, and <laughs> I'm still, it's, a, it's not the easiest answer, because I'm probably going to ask you the same question. Who do I write for? I think it has changed over the years. In the beginning, I really don't think that a serious writer can sit down at their desk as a young writer and not think that they're, out, they're not out to change the world. Like, I know that that's what I was thinking that I wanted to infiltrate American culture, African-American culture, with my ideas about what was right, what was wrong, what needed to change. And this, but, but I did that by telling the stories of the people I grew up around and, and family. So, but I wasn't writing for them. I was, I was writing for the people I would meet later, like to intensify and increase the humanity of the people that I knew. 
like I felt like not only me but the people around me were always reduced to symbols and objects and I wanted to inflate that just like every other writer mm -hmm. you know that I grew up reading you know I grew up reading Baldwin and Richard Wright and Langston Hughes and uh, Ralph Ellison and Toni Morrison also I mean all of those writers do we all I think we all do the same thing it's this attempt to get at the truth by engaging in the stories of the people that we know and the people we love. But you don't know who you're writing for. It's not that simple because those folks are not necessarily the folks who are gonna go buy your books. Um, so I would say on one hand, I, was, I, I always felt I was writing for African-American men. But I'll never forget being at um, my first book, Losing Absalom, the cover image was painted by a great African-American artist, Jacob Lawrence. Jacob Lawrence has passed on, but before he passed, the University of Minnesota Wiseman uh, Art Museum had a big Jacob Lawrence retrospective. So it's like I, I had been here for some years, but I, but I had never seen that many black people in one building in Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Jacob Lawrence and his wife came, and uh, my book was recently out, and all of the people who would come up to me said, I heard you wrote a great book. Mm. And that told me, that told me a volumes. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, all the, all the, the, most of the people who came up to me and said, I love your book, were women. And all the guys said, I heard you wrote a great book, <laughs> which told me that I was going to miss my market <laughs> from the very beginning. Mm. Uh, writing for because editors don't think black men read, publishers don't think black men read, agents don't think black men read, and so it's really hard to get through that system to be a functioning publishing African American male novelist writing the kind of stories that I was writing. So. I had to really close down that whole idea of who am I writing for. And I just had to sort of pursue the truth mm. um, in the best, clearest, create, most creative way I could possibly do it, hoping one day that my audience would find me. Hmm. Wow. Good <laughs> Why do you write? Who do you write? Who do you write for? Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I, I write to also, so to tell the truth, um, whatever the truth is at that moment, or really to ask a question. I feel like typically when I'm writing, I'm grappling with some sort of a question. Um, and the process of writing is like coming to an answer. I think I'm still, um, I'm still writing for a specific population. I'm writing for like, for my people, I'm writing for black black readers, um, black audience. I, and that feels really liberating to me. Um, so I'm still in that space. It is definitely to tell the truth, but it's also like just straight for the liberation of, of uh, the black community. Like, however that happens, however that manifests through, through the writings that I share. Um, I gotta think about, I went to a show that Pavio French did um, as part of Underbelly at Intermedia Arts. 
And she opened the show by, you know, just unapologetically stating, you know, that as a black woman living in America in 2015, if you don't, if, if this ain't for you, it just ain't for you. And it ain't for you. I'm glad you came but this is for my people, you know what I'm saying? And it was just like, ah, oh, it was, there was so much pain and so much beauty and so much struggle. And there was a strong emphasis on black liberation, the Black Lives Matter movement, and just her experience in the, a black female body, you know what I mean? And um, I love that permission, like being able to speak to like being able to speak to a specific person, not having to apologize for the stories that you're telling, how you're telling them, um, any sort of vernacular and et cetera. That was part of like, I think my trauma with going to school, you know, like in some spaces it was, you know, the writing style was too chill. In other spaces it was, it was, uh, it was celebrated. My personality came through. My voice as a writer was accepted, you know. Um, so I want to write for my folks on some Toni Morrison. Like if the word, if the language is too hard for you, it's too, it's not for you, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but how does that? How does that? How does writing for a specific audience change the audience, the readership, or the listener? Say what you mean by the word change. What are you going for? What is the What is the goal? I mean, I, you know, what I'm saying like yeah, yeah. I was saying that I was trying to. Um, I guess the question is a bigger question is how does the literary art form impact the way people are? Well, it's a couple of different questions. I mean, I think the practice of writing. First, I think if you can engage with something, if you can identify yourself in something, that's the thing. I keep using my college experience, but, or my lived experience as a student, period, right? So like, there, most of my career inside of public, ed public school education, like I didn't see myself. I couldn't hear myself. And then when I did, that's when I, that's when I fell in love with it. That's when I found interest. So like, we're, um, we just did a focus group and specifically using Blues Vision. And there was a young man that I've mentored for the last five years. And the question we were asking was opening circle, we're in the cipher. And they're like, <clears throat> what has African-American literature done for you? Yeah. Right? And his response was, you know, it, uh, it made me want to read. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to read before I started engaging with African-American literature. And to have a young African-American male say that, mm -hmm. you know, and then to talk about when he first engaged with it. He's like, you know, I was 11 years old before I really started to care about reading. And it was because this black man gave me this black book and then every Saturday he gave me more black literature to read. It was that practice of having black, having himself reflected, you know, mm -hmm. seeing a reflection of himself and his story that inspired him to keep going. So I'm like, I feel it, bro, because I feel the <laughs> same way. I'm like, okay. So, you know, um, and Tracks. So Tracks is one of the poems I have in that book. Some people identify on like Central High School. So I say something about Central High School and across demographics. Oh, I went to Central, I, yeah, it is, it really is set up like that. It's super hierarchical and it is like a prison and it was designed by, and that's cool. Um, <laughs> it is, because it's true and it's awesome and I, I'm really glad that you can identify and, um, and 
most of the students of color are the students on the bottom floor. This is like the levels and the layers at which you can identify. And then what does that mean? Like, oh, snap, that story is valid. I, I thought about that. I never said it. I can tell that story, too. I can say, you know, I think that's what it, that's the change. Yeah. Where your story becomes valid. Yeah. Where you begin to recognize you have a story, and then there, there's power in that. And then what do you do with that? You, you're, something gets activated inside of you, right? You you see a different kind of value in yourself. That's the change, right? The impetus to act, to move. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yep, that's all I got for that one. Because <laughs> there's, you know, there's, there's layers to it, right? Um, so I know if you're saying like that you were writing for African-American males, now that you know, you're your gaze is a little bit wider. Do you feel like you're changing and affecting those African-American males still? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it, my focus never changed. My expectations started to evolve. Mm. Um, I still sit down to write to change the world. I still expect everything to come back or to impact the way the world is the way I imagine. I mean, nothing has really changed. What, ha except, you know, I changed, I grew. I began to understand that this is a long journey, that a lot of people are on this journey to change this culture, to make this culture open and honest and, and, and viable for, for all people. That idea that I, I would just sort of be hoisted aloft, you know, mm. I mean, I, uh, and that the word, that my words were um, the catalyst for that change. Well, I guess I still, you know, it's like I walk into a creative writing class and I'll tell MFA, first year MFA students, your job is to be great. And they'll look at me and say, I'm just trying to figure out how to write a short story. <laughs> and I'm like, once we figure out how to write a short story, the real question is, what are you writing about? Mm. Where is this all going? And I think, and for me, for me, that, that part has never changed. The bigness of what we set out to do can't change. I don't really know how change happens. So when I ask you, how does that affect people? I don't have an answer for that because, you know, our, our generations are, there's a big gap in our generations. The struggle you're engaged in is the same struggle I'm engaged in, the same struggle I've always been engaged in. It's the same struggle uh, James Baldwin was engaged in. It's just, it's a struggle. And frankly, it's the same struggle writers all over the world are engaged in. It's to make the human condition better, to make the human condition fuller and more more human. So, I mean, in some fundamental way, I guess if there's any slight change, it's the recognition that, for me, that uh, even though my focus is the African-American family or African-American men or uh, the survival of black men in this culture, it's a bigger story than that. I mean, we have to take off the pieces we could take off. But somebody has to really uh, 
It's a bigger story than that, but you can't write, the bigger story has to be written in small pieces, mm -hmm. I guess is what it comes down to. Um, I really haven't, I really, I really haven't scaled back. I mean, the only thing that I'm not doing is I'm not producing as much work as I once did because I'm doing other things to also add to this attempt to have an impact on our culture. You know, the work that I'm doing in the public school system, and I know the work that you do in education as well in public schools. It's like, I know that we, we I know I'm spending a way more amount of time working with teachers and school systems now than I ever thought I would. I thought, I mean, my goal when I first started writing was a bookshelf. I want an entire bookshelf. Yeah. About that big. And I'm, I'm, about, I'm about 10 years behind right now. But, you know, the other thing is this unrelenting, opt one of the things that great about being a writer with a little, you just have to have a little bit of success as a writer before you can, but if you get a little bit, you can actually think, that that's the way it's gonna be and you're gonna do these things and it's like, um, it, having published and, and produced work and had some degree of acceptance and notoriety, I would say minor though it is, moderate though it is, I'm, I, I always expect tomorrow to, to lead me to that next piece. It's like I am, I am still full of optimism about my career, about my writing, and about the impact of that writing. And to the point where now, it doesn't really matter if I get to see it. Like, it, there's a point at which you, you start to understand writers like Gene Toomer, for example, who wrote Kane, a great African-American novel. He, I don't even know if he thought he was African-American. 1920s, Harlem Renaissance writer, great story. Died, he didn't really know where, what that book would mean or how it would be used in the, in the academy, but people teach that book. It's a book that really articulates a changing of times in the way writers write about the South and the North and all, all of that. So you start to realize you can't know everything. You can only know this thing that you are trying to do. Um, the novel I'm working on right now, I've been writing for, you know, I mean, it's been in my computer for 10 years. Hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, maybe three quarters of the way through, and it's not because I'm stuck or anything, it's I'm doing so many other things, I can't make the progress I want to make, and I need to focus my mind on it when, it when I get to it, but I'll get to it. And everything will work itself out, and that work will change the world. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? When mm -hmm. I, I guess my point is every time I sit down, as grandiose as this may seem, I think it's real, and I think, and my language is bigger. Yeah. So there is no, even though I'm, I'm still writing about an African-American man, I don't need to have the announcement that this is just for you, or just for you, and not for you. And I think that's, I mean, it, you know, Baraka did that when he started the Black Arts Theater um, back in the 1960s. He's like, this is our theater. You can come if you want to, actually, the first shows or two. He, it were only black people they would let into the theater. Uh, and he was like, this is, this is for us. But I think it's, an, it's evolving 
actually the truth is that this culture keeps knocking things back down. So we make this progress and then Black Lives Matter has to come about to make it a new announcement, a new assessment. Things aren't what we thought they were. Things aren't the way they, we thought they were. So now it's a whole new kind of voice that needs to be ushered in to sort of make this attempt at correcting American culture again. So how do you feel, I mean, so how does that relate to your, how does Black Lives Matter relate to your work? Oh, that question, I don't know that I should answer. So like the, <laughs> you know, I, I mean. No, there were questions that were off limits. Yo, I mean, that's a, that's a big beast to talk about. You know what I mean? That's like, that's, that's the 10 point program, the Black Panther Manifesto, you know what I mean? That's like, that's a whole nother beast to talk about. Um, Sorry, I forgot about this. <laughs> um, uh, but in a really generic way, Black Lives Matter. That's how it relates to my work. But in a way where it, like connecting the movement to my work, I think that's a, that's a bit more. I was wondering if you do connect that movement to your work. And I think that's a bit, there's a, like a okay, nuanced okay. relationship <laughs> right there, you know? I think that um, I, I connected to my work and that my work is connected to folks who uh, have tried to speak to the value of black life mm -hmm. um, historically, and that I support that uh, I support that concept, mm -hmm. right? And I support um, I support our people trying to um, trying to bring about change, positive mm -hmm. change in our communities, um, and to humanize us again, like continuously humanize us. So, but I don't know that I'm like um, intentionally connecting my movement to the Black Lives Matter movement like on some Black Lives Matter Minneapolis or Black Lives Matter St. Paul or Black Lives Matter nationally Got it. or internationally. I think that's really, imp you know, when I first started writing, it was, there were all kinds of movements going mm -hmm. on. Black power movement, black arts movement, black nationalists, and as a writer, it's like I support all of the things that are about making people more human and to move the culture for, forward. Support all of that. But to, con but to actually make, then it becomes, then the question is what is art? Yeah. Because that was the, you know, the whole question of the black aesthetic came up at that point. It's like, you know, there were people in, in, in this country who were saying black writers need to do this. Right. And I don't know if that's coming out of that movement in the contemporary reality. But if it is, that's the moment when writers, artists have to sit up and say, okay, what, what is actually going on here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is my voice? What is my unique voice in this, in this mix? Yeah, so we talked about that. We talked about that at the open mic, right? What's the, when is it a rant? When, when is the specifically like spoken word, right? Um, because there's also this tension between spoken word and slam poetry. Right. Like there is a difference. It's the same thing. One is just like a competition and one is not that, right? Um, but you're doing spoken word when you slam. However, there's like a slam culture and a slam voice and then there's what people identify as like a spoken word voice and the yada yada. So we were talking about like when, when does the spoken word piece become a rant? When is the spoken word piece propaganda? When is the spoken word piece like just poetry, it's poetry. It's always poetry, but there are ways, you know, then it can shift, so when you connect it to this movement or you have this agenda and you're writing with this agenda, is it propaganda, is it? So there's a little bit of tension, you know, there, and like, 
room to sort of play and struggle with the idea of how you're lending your voice to what. And then at the same time, when it matters, it matters. When you care, you care. So maybe the spoken word piece is a rant. Maybe it does sound like propaganda when you have a poem. Well, if it comes know. out of you, if it's organic, it is what it is. Right. <laughs> right? But people then want to, you know, it's as long as it comes out of you, as opposed to it's some mechanism, some tool for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think we go through these waves of evolution as people of color in this country where, um, where what you feel has to run through some filter right. of that. other people saying, oh, that's valid, or other people saying, that's not valid. And then we go through another period where everything is open and you can just communicate and, and, and write. So how do you write a poem? Whew. I'm a nerd, so sometimes one of my favorite experiences writing is, was not nerdy. It was, um, I had a show at Bryant Lake Bowl the night that uh, George Zimmerman got off. I had a show. I was supposed to be inside and my partner and I were in the car. We had just parked the car and then CNN was like, the verdict is in. In four minutes, it's gonna be live. And I'm like, man, I'm late, but I gotta, I gotta be late. So we sat in the car, we watched the thing live, we both cried, and then I wrote a poem. So sometimes I write a poem, that's how I write a poem. Um, that was one of my favorite poems. You don't have it in your head, do you? I don't. Okay. It's painful. No, okay. I don't. Um, other times, I'm like mega nerdy with it. I'm like, hmm, syntax. Let's play with syntax for a month, you know? Or uh, n new forms, right? So the bop is a new form that came from a Cave Canem retreat. Let's, you know, I'll spend time sort of playing with things, um, different ways to engage with text. And also just experiences, man. Trying to write every single day and see what happens. Um, I can't say that I'm the best at it. I don't write every day. I try to write every day, but it's hard to do that. It's hard to write every day. Um, so that's sort of how I write a poem. Um, I think I also think of poems as puzzle pieces now. I stopped. The spoken word thing is like traditionally three and a half minutes long of a thing. When you, uh, growing up in that, I thought I had to unlearn that. You grew up as a spoken word artist. Yo. Wow. You know, like slamming. So, you know, I started doing, I, I started seeing slam poets first. Like, I think Zell Miller III came through. He was one of the first poets that I saw, like, with that sort of aesthetic. Um, he came to my class freshman year um, and did a spoken word theater piece. Right, so all the joints were oh, mad yeah, long. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yo, they were like mad long, and I'm like, whoa, okay, poetry, right? And then E.G. and Shea and Carolyn Holbrook, and you know, f the folks started coming through. And but when I would go out, when I would go out, or when they would come to the class for extended periods of time, it was super spoken word. It was very, very long, very long stuff. I would read other stuff, but because I was so young and I was inside of the school system, I was being fed the canon, right? So that my folks, I had to go out and find my folks and find things that weren't. The, where we're not, we're not, we don't exist in the canon, really, right? Um, so anyway, uh, so yeah, so I grew up with this whole three and a half minutes is the standard length of the poem thing that you write. So I had to unlearn that, 
do some independent study, go to other readings, readings that were outside of the Blue Nile, whatever, and um, the slam community, right? Go to actual poetry readings where, you know, people are reading their poems from their book and it may be a limerick, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, or a series of haiku and then be introduced to older writers. So that's also what I appreciate about coming up in spoken word. So when I got to the sort of international level, that's when I started meeting, I'm, that's how I met Amir Baraka, right? That's how I met Sonia Sanchez. And then I started reading some of their books, so that was 17. But I had to, I had to leave here, honestly, to like do that. The, the folks that I saw on a regular basis who were my mentors, mentors were mentoring me in the art of like spoken, spoken word. word. They weren't mentoring me in terms of poetry. What is the, can you talk about the difference? Yeah, there is no difference. That's what's so <laughs> there crazy. There is no difference between spoken word and, and literary poetry. I can't say that. I think that's super whack because what, to me, what that, <laughs> nah, I mean, you know, we, you, you earlier you mentioned like, you know, people think that black men don't read. If I say, that there's a difference between spoken word poetry and poetry, then spoken word becomes this thing that's devalued. I know, I know, I was, I was actually asking. I yeah, I know, but I'm saying, <laughs> so yeah, no, there's no difference, right? In order to be a good spoken word artist, you should be a good poet. You should understand what it means to write a good poem. You should understand different poetic devices, tools, and you should play with it. You should be able to maneuver in and out of the thing. We should unlearn that it, a poem is three and a half minutes long. What I appreciate about the national and international scene is that it does that, right? So like, and we've started to be more intentional about it. So for, we, my organization takes a cohort of young people to an international youth poetry slam every year called Brave New Voices. And it used to be four rounds of poetry. All the poems were three and a half minutes. So we got a little bit more intentional and we changed it a couple years ago. Now there's a lightning round. All the poems are 60 seconds, right? Uh, Hawaii has like uh, form slams, right? Like this is the haiku bout, you know? This is the epistle bout. This is the only elegy, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> this is a whole new world. <laughs> Yo, and it's awesome. I know. And it validates the thing, you know? So um, yeah, so some, I write like that. I, write, I really write to have fun and like learn the thing and play with it. I really love poetry. I absolutely love poetry. Um, so I just nerd out. My process is to nerd out and care. Yeah? Um, I have a question for you though, doubling back to like this literacy thing and specifically thinking about where we live and the disparities between African American males specifically, right? It's the biggest gap area, but the disparities between people of color African-American people and people of European descent, how does your, how is your work, um, how does your work exist in relationship to those disparities and to sort of shift The work that, that I'm doing now or the, or the, the writing? You're writing, you're writing, well, you know, or the other work, but you're writing. That's a difficult, so, I mean, ask that question, can you ask it just a slightly different? Well, how do you, how do you, how does your work, how is your work, um, I don't want to assume that your work is addressing that. So I'm trying to ask that question in a way where you can tell me whether it is or not. Is your work? Um... It does not address that gap. Mm. My work uh, assumes that my readers are willing to go on a journey with me, a trip with me through language, through his experiences, whatever. 
No, it's what I was saying to you before we walked up here is the working that the work that I do in the school system really in some ways has something to do with developing a readership. Mm. Um, it's important, I think, my work as a novelist, I mean, and if you look at movements, novels don't work in movements as well as poetry does. So if you think about the black arts movement, my, my world, there were very few novelists that came through that period. Most, Sonia Sanchez, Amiri Baraka, mm -hmm. you know, they were mostly poets. Uh, the long form writers of that period, they're there, but they, they aren't well known because the whole idea of writing and revolution and change was a, is a more of a poetic art form, I think, or at least that's the way I feel about it at this moment. But, but the story itself, my stories aren't complicated in general. They're very simple stories. So Losing Absalom is a simple story in a way. It's about a, a man who goes back to Philadelphia when his father's dying and all the things that take place, who leaves Minnesota, goes back to Philadelphia and experiences uh, what he experiences during that trip. Uh, but if you can't enter into that story at a certain literary literacy level, story means nothing to you. Hmm. So, the, so the story can't teach you how to read. The story can't, poetry can actually teach you how to read. Poetry can teach you how to feel. But I think literature, or not literature, but prose, fiction in particular, assumes that you can enter into this story at a, at a level and stay up. And with a writer like me, I'm not only going, you, don't, you only can't just stay up, I'm gonna keep throwing things at you. I'm burying things in my mm -hmm. story. I'm leaving little treasures, little symbols. I'm pointing in different directions. I mean, I'm assuming you've read 10 people that you, you know, so, and this sentence is a homage to that particular writer, or this sentence is, I mean, you do that in poetry too, but in some ways in poetry, you can almost point hmm. and say, you know, think about this, and, or at least this is the way I think about poetry. I've never thought about that in, in fiction, and really when it comes to fiction, which is my dominant form, uh, the critique of African-American literary fiction across the board, the whole spectrum, not just Toni Morrison and Alice Walker, and not just the four or five writers that people talk about all the time, but across the board is lacking. Hmm. So, the, I mean, in, in some sort of academic way, ultimately those things catch up, and somebody will eventually do the history of black writing for 1980, 1990, 2000, and then we'll know a little bit more about it. But really, people only talk about two or three people. So the idea of what the impact of my work or anybody else's work while you're doing it is really hard to see, really hard to tell. But I can't write for people who can't read. Hmm. I mean, there, the thing about spoken word is the, is the feeling. It's like there's a feeling there, a movement, an energy, a rhythm that is palpable and is understandable, and you can just vibe off that until you catch up with the word and, and, and the energy that's going. You know, I've done a lot of work in hip hop and rap, and one of the beautiful things about all that is the rhythm is repetitive, 
And I don't mean repetitive in that moment, but repetitive throughout history. Like the same beat pops up, pops up, mm -hmm. pops up. And so people can, can, can slip into that space. You know, what, what Tricia Rose called coverage, you know, they can be covered by that beat and stay there. And then the, eventually, if you stay there, the words start to mean more mm -hmm. and the impact starts to grow and you can grow from there. I'm not sure that can happen with prose in the way that I write prose in, in my work. It's sort of like you have to enter into the story with some consciousness about who these people are and what's going on. I'll help you out, but also I'm trying to trick you. Mm. So, I mean, it's a much more manipulative art form where you're seducing people in and then you're trying to flip the script on them in some way. Can you say more, you started to say that poetry can teach you how to read? Yeah. Say more about that. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think, I think you can vibe off the beat or rhythm or the images. The images are, are sort of singular that are then added on top of other images in a way that is both a part of a story and just about music, the rhythm and the image. So you can, I mean, I could go to your poem and take a line and I don't have to show any, I don't, say, I don't need to say anything more about that line for some people. They say, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. But in a piece of fiction, it would be much harder to do, mm. to find a sentence mm -hmm. that, that uh, and when, I'm, when I mean about teaching to read, I mean that if you, sp you spend time in that space, this is how people learn how to read through memory, mm -hmm. through repetition, through rhyme. I mean, this is one of the, that's how history is told mm -hmm. in some cases when we're talking about rhyme. I know we're not just talking about rhyme, but uh, I just think the form of poetry, especially as it relates to folks, um, to the folks that we're talking about, it, it often is a seductive, powerful energy that asks the reader, the listener, to come in for more. I mean, do you, do, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think poets, I think in a lot of ways, poets bring literature to the people in a way that novelists can't do. I mean, I've always felt that. I, you know, you know I, I said to Jay Otis once, I think poetry is the ultimate art form. I will follow a poet. Mm. If you're, I mean, and, and it all came crashing down on me when I was working at McAllister and I had a colleague who I was a poet, a published poet who I heard lie. Mm. Before that moment, I would have never believed a poet could lie. Mm. I mean, it was, it was, it's naive. It's ridiculously naive. But to me, it's, it's an offense against, I don't know what or who, but poets should not be capable of lying. It just, it just, it, it demoralized me, really, that, the, that I was wrong about that. That there are poets who do lie. But in my purest understanding of what poetry is, it's impossible because your whole thing is to search for truth. Like, how could you, do you know? I mean, it, the, it, anyway, so on the other hand, fiction writers 
are liars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lying is what I do. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to create a world in which that lie looks real and looks like truth and leads you to some understanding about. So in some ways, when you think about that, the level of literacy that a person has to have to engage in that kind of um, play is pretty, you know, it's pretty high. Uh, which is not to say that, I mean, then on the other side of that, uh, which is not to say that our children and our community isn't in aggressively engaged in absorbing stories about their lives. Hmm. It's like I, I was at Capri Theater last week and I saw this, this group of uh, young black kids. It was like one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. And this young man who's going to go off to college, he's in the 12th grade, he's going to graduate. He wanted to be a writer. He just looked at me like, wow. Hmm. I mean, that moment to know that he had done some reading was right. I mean, there are people, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood. Like, this is not beyond the pale. This is what our, all of our kids are engaged in. It's just the system doesn't support us mm -hmm. in that endeavor, in that journey. The reviews are only about a few people. The conversation is only about a few people. And it's as if this literature, and I want to make this point, that this literature, this literature like is in, that is in Blue's vision, that you create, that I create, is critical for the lifeblood and the growth of our children. It has to figure out a way to find itself into the public school system, irrespective of the edges that are there and the barbs and the shots that are there. Our teachers have to become comfortable with sharing stories about the kids they teach, mm -hmm. written by the people who live with those children, so that those children understand their lives didn't begin at grade seven. Right. That there is a history and that that history changes the way we are. It was only, it's only when you realize how rich and powerful and beautiful black people are can you stop being angry all the time. Mm. I mean, it's, it's when that happens. I remember, you know, I don't know where it was, in high school getting a unit of African history that talked about the reign of African kings and the knowledge and all of that. It's like, thank you. Slavery is an aberration. It's not the actual lineage yeah. of people, of black people in this country. And it's the same if you're an immigrant. It's like you, you have to jump over what happened to you in the last five years, and you have to go all the way back into the history of the country and the people you came from. That's where your power is. And it doesn't mean it has to be up against somebody else's power. It's just about fortifying your own existence. Mm -hmm. And when people look at, our, at children right now, young people, they miss the fact that we don't spend enough time fortifying their reality, their, their cultural, racial, historical grounding. Mm -hmm. Because I think if we did that, there'd be a lot less issues. That's great. That was a question of mine, like the, the significance of Blue's vision. Yeah, I, I really think this book is, is important. It's kind of critical. Um, in Minnesota, because you know, in my in when people interview me about this, I've been here a long time. I remember my first reading in Minnesota was on top of Mayday Books on Chicago Avenue. First reading I went to, and uh, 
I think Garrison was there, Trish Hamper was there, Michael Dennis Brown was there. It was the whole crew. And it was really interesting, but I didn't think, but it did not, well, actually, it was like Wobegon in a way, because, it, because really, folks like us hadn't really gotten here yet. Mm. We were still coming here. Um, and I, I was really, it was really exciting on one hand, but I also felt like I was not a part of that mm. and that it would take a lot. And, but in some ways, I did make that, I did become somewhat a part of that. But when people talk about Minnesota literature, they never think about the writers of color that have lived here, mm. the August Wilsons. I mean, when you think about, you know, the folks who have written here, who came of age here. Mm -hmm. um, and so the blue, Blues Vision was really about trying to, my thing is always about injecting, intervening in history, pulling apart space, and injecting some truth about our reality in that space. Um, let's see, I have a question for you. Um, how have you changed in the last five years? It's arbitrary five years. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I've slowed down mostly. Um, like just thinking about Blue's Vision. Um, it's an interesting thing, this generation, you know, with YouTube and social media and the blah, blah, blah. We're really self-indulgent, very sort of egotistical. We think we are famous already <laughs> and super important. You know, not that we're not. But um, no, we're I really, not. we are super, you know, <laughs> um, but it's, you know, I'm like appreciating my elders wanting to hold those stories differently than I had before. Um, things that I've heard people say years ago are resonating with me now, like uh, in like 2011 or something like that, Sonia Sanchez, it's been egging me, but Sonia Sanchez, somebody, one of the youth that we brought, yeah, so one of the young people that we brought to this thing asked her why she wrote so much about love. And her response was because uh, when the revolution is over, I hope we still know how to do it, right? And like that has come back to me, it's not five years, whatever, but that's come back to me and really thinking about that and how I practice love and like, and honor and I think I've, I think I'm like in this humility process too, and also, you know, like looking at the youth that I work with and wanting there to be a pause or like a slow motion button. There's a slow motion option on iPhone 6s, so if we could like think about, you know, if we could do some slow-mo, because we're also losing elders, right? Like um, Kofi Bobby Hickman just passed away, right? And his services were the day that we I know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he's, you know, there's an homage to him in here. For sure. That wasn't done expecting him to not be there. Right. Right. So I'm like, I want to, I want to be in relationship with the folks who have shaped me um, while they're here. I also want to be able to continue to share those stories. So I think in the last five years, I've just been thinking about how important we are and how important our narratives are. Um, a lot less than like mine, because yeah. it's not my it's not my story. It's our story. I'm like a you know a character in our story. Yeah. So I'm trying to be more intentional about holding that space and about modeling that. And I think that 
my writing reflects that. My writing is bigger. Um, oh, and I'm proud of that. So, you know, there was that ego thing, but I'm super <laughs> proud of that. My writing is bigger. I'm asking bigger questions. Um, yeah, that's, that's the significant change. I see there's more at stake to me now. There was always a lot at stake. But I think um, my perspective is different. It's maybe a bit more metacognitive than like, I want to live. I do want to live. But it was really like for me, especially because of where I came from and how I grew up, it was very much like, I want to live and I need to tell this story about my life and the life of my, and it's like, I want to live and here and like all of these people are why? And all of these people are like, how? You know, like even to be here, I was thinking about our relationship in preparation for this, like, and how many times I've seen Carolyn Holbrook in the last two weeks and been like, I'm kind of nervous and intimidated to be sitting next to Alex Pate doing this interview thing. You were my mentor when I was in high school, you know, as a, through the loft. And then my college professor, you know? Yeah. And like, <laughs> and just always the guy. <laughs> you know, and then like our personal relationships, you know what I mean? Like our mm -hmm. friends in common, the things mm -hmm. that we've gone through, mm -hmm. like, and you're, um, and you're um, amazing, you, what? And you edited this thing and you wrote all these, you know, I read your books in classes. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to hold all of that and trying to really see that for how great it is. Yep. Yep. And the space that's created for me because of the things that all you wonderful people do. Yep. That's my responsibility to that. Well, I appreciate that. And it's a great, it's a great thing to see people. That's why I asked you how you have changed in the last five years, how, you know, how, how you feel like you've changed. It's just great to watch people grow. It's just great to watch people grow. And especially somebody like you, who is super talented, was super talented the first time I saw anything written by you, and who continues to make that work better, mm -hmm. and continues to find ways to have your impact in the world. But I wanted to go back to the first question, because about who I write for. Because I've thought about, I've been, I was, I've been thinking about this as I've been sitting here. And it's not, it's, it is about who, but it's also about the what. When I, when I talk about writing for African American men, what I've really been focused on is internal, is the interiority hmm. of African American existence. Not the external. Not the fight. The fight, other people got that. I'm assuming other people can, I'm really, when, when you said that about Sanchez, it's like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, she's talking about when the struggle is over, we still have to love. I hope we can still do that. Well, I am also saying, while we're spending all this time looking out, what's going on inside? Yeah, you talked about the good yeah. in class, yeah. and that's, that has stuck with me too. So yeah, I think I, I, I am, the innocence and the goodness of African-American people is really critical and it needs to be nurtured and supported and developed. And it's really hard to do that when you spend all your time fighting with other people. And so I'm like, you can fight all you want, but there has to be a time when we come together and you can just talk about healing, about internal and interior growth. And with that, we've reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Alex Pate and Tish Jones and their work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage. 
and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Jones can describe the difference between slam poetry and spoken word. People say there's a difference, but actually spoken word is the art form. It's just, it's poetry written aloud. The spoken word is, super, is old. It's an old term that they're making new. Boom. <laughs> this is me forgetting to use the microphone. Um, and I'm a poet. <laughs> um, so slam is a competition. It's a, it's like, it's a battle, right? So you do a spoken word piece in front of five judges and they score your poem on a scale of one to 10 and then there's sometimes a prize involved, sometimes just bragging rights, but that's um, slam. Our next audience member asks Jones if she considers all the poems she writes to be about the African-American experience. It's hard for me to say no. I, uh, when I experience a flower and I think it's amazing and I write about it, it's a part of my black life. <laughs> um, the answer is both end. Like that's, and that's a super black answer. That's a black feminist way to answer that question, that it's both ends. So maybe no and maybe yes. Or maybe there's only one way to write about a flower, ah. which is through, your, through the lens of your unconsciousness. And whatever that is, however that has added up, is the way you see it. And so it's funny because um, if you think about the way you think about things, it comes from your family, how you were brought up, what the significance of flowers are in your family. Any connotation, like first Any, thing I think you know, about I just like, Right, right. Sometimes <laughs> I drive, when I was driving around doing writers in the schools, and you go through farmland, and I look out at farmhouses, and some people see pastoral, um, beautiful um, scenery, and I'm thinking, what horrors are going on in those houses? It's just the way mm -hmm. we come to things. I remember the first time when I moved to Minnesota, I mean, growing up in inner city Philadelphia, nature meant nothing to me. Mm. We would go to the park for a picnic. That's cool. But it didn't really mean anything. I, I moved here and I, and I was, walked out of my house one day, or I looked out my back, on my back porch, and I saw a cardinal under a shrubbery. And every day, for the entire summer, that cardinal was there at 510. Every day. And it was like, and I wrote a, I wrote a poem about that because it's, it shook me out of my, that place I was in where nature didn't have significance to me. But how, what I saw in that cardinal was simply a reminder that the world is around me. Not, you know, the richness of the color, not the shape of the head, not the flutter of the wings. Somebody else who is really used to seeing cardinals might write only about that. But for me, it was a political moment a discovery that I was a part of this earth, not something pushed off to the side, and that me and this cardinal existed in the same space together and how beautiful that was. That's a really kind of an African-American view at that moment. So it's like, you know, whether how you write about a flower and how you write about love, if you're Sonia Sanchez, is not just about love. This question asker wonders why Pate decided to create Blue's vision. What was the process like and what impact does he hope to see the book create 
in terms of social justice. These voices were absent from the, from the landscape of Minnesota literature. When you walk in and there's a bookshelf that says Minnesota writers, very few of these writers show up there. If you're talking, if you hear a professor in a class in English talking about Minnesota writers, very few of these writers, if any of them, show up in that conversation. It's just past time that writers of color, that black writers, and I mean, I, it should be a bigger thing than this. There are many writers of multiple cultures and, uh, uh, and, and, and ways of being that ought to be represented in the conversation about Minnesota literature. So that was, that's the why. It needed to happen. It's needed to happen for 10, 15, 20 years. There have been too many writers. This is places rich with artistic talent uh, uh, across the board, and these folks have been largely ignored, and time would pass. And how does history get told? We need these things to tell the history uh, of, of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, how? We, I knew, I knew a, a good number of writers. I, I asked specific writers like Tish to make sure that um, they got their work in, and, and I could, you know, we could look at, we could look at, you know, whatever we got, and we put a call out to, in general, to uh, African American writers, and we asked for folks to make submissions, and then we decided um, that we would create. Uh, working with my co-editors, uh, Pamela Fletcher and J. Otis Powell, we, we developed this little uh, quick evaluative format where we checked off in poetry. We might have been looking at language use and imagery and rhythm. In prose, we might have been looking at uh, creativity, uniqueness of the idea, et cetera. We had a list, and, and work just sort of started to pile up over here. and. Work that didn't work, we were, you know, we asked some people to make some changes or whatever, but we, and then I started, then I started to look at it, you know, not evaluatively, but subject matter wise, how it sounded, and it just got to be um, unbelievable. I was stunned by the quality of the work that is in this book, stunned by it. Um, because you don't know, because we never, I, I know people individually, Carolyn or Tish or, but you don't, and you know their work is good, but you don't know what her work is like up against Tish's work, up against my work, up against Gordon Parks's work. I mean, when you put them all together, then the voice becomes really interesting. And more and also subtextually, like I'm thinking, this is one of the few books about race and, and geography. Because I'm saying, this is Minnesota. And I wanna know what does the geographic reality of Minnesota how does that impact how people of color see this work or see their lives? And how do they represent that? And what if, is everybody gonna write about snow? Is everybody gonna write about being cold all the time? Um, how, does, how does being in love and being cold at the same time work? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are really interesting questions and these folks get, what is it like to grow up in Kenwood in 1972? You know, what is it like to, to live on Rondo back in the day before that changed? These, what, is it, what is it like to live in outstatement in what, you know, rural Minnesota and be the only black family in the community? Mm -hmm. We have all of that is represented here as well as all the historical stuff like Gordon Parks riding the, the train back and forth. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, because he doesn't have anywhere to live that night. So that was, 
the voices were just rich. This question is about how Pate would like to see his book used in schools. I sent letters to folks who were interested in, or when we did the call, and I, there is profanity in this book, but there's precious little of it. There is little, not that profanity, I mean, here, my point about that has to do with how do you get into the public school system? This, I wanted this book to be a usable document at the high school level for kids across the state, not black kids, but kids across the state to understand. And we've, you know, we've talked to teachers who are using this book and who plan to use it about, you know, they want to know how do we contextualize this. But yeah, with some contextualization, the book is entirely usable to expand the knowledge of students across this state at the high school level about what it means to be African-American in Minnesota. Our last question of the night is how Pate feels about libraries and bookstores organizing African-American books together all in one section. As long as it's also included in the general, I'm good with it. If you're, if you're highlighting the fact that you have an African-American collection of books and literature, I think that's really important because kids and parents go to that, those places to find the work that they want to share with their families. And people who are interested in learning more about African-American people go to those sections. So if you're not there, or if it doesn't exist, then you don't really know where to look. But at the same time, if you just want to, one of the challenges, believe it or not, with all of this race-focused conversation is to simply be. It's like we have to go all the way around the barn <laughs> to get to the place where we are just talking as human beings to each other. But we got to make sure we do that, because otherwise we're not sure people will look at us the way they look at other people like people. Because we see too much evidence in the culture of people like us not being seen as human beings. So we have to go through this whole thing our goal, I don't know about, I'm not speaking for anybody but me, but my goal is the point where my book it lines up against D.H. Lawrence, well, maybe not D.H. Lawrence, but, I mean, you know, Euripides. <laughs> or shake, you know what I mean? Where there is no, except the subject matter, or the language, you know, the interesting way in which this person uses language, you know, these comparisons are made that way, not necessarily because I'm, black. Well, we're still, in the, we're still in, the, in this struggle space, and we have to struggle through this. That's what we're doing here. That's why this book exists. Thank you for your time and attention. Yes. Thank you. That wraps up our Roseville Library event with Alex Pate and Tish Jones in Ramsey County. Make sure to catch our final club book event of the season, with Brando Skyhorse at 7 p.m. Tuesday, November 10th, at St. Paul's Highland Park Library. Brando Skyhorse may be best known for his fiction work, but his newest is a poignant and one-of-a-kind memoir. In Take This Man, Skyhorse recounts stories from a singular childhood, during which his mother hid the truth of his Mexican heritage and raised him to believe he was Native American. Meet Brando Skyhorse, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. 
We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may enjoy them too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.